What a joy. Wow, where'd you all come from? When I sat down at Two Till, I thought, yeah, Kurt, that's what you get for putting it on the uh, internet that you're not preaching. Um, But you came. Um, Turn to Leviticus. Believe it or not, yes, Leviticus changed my life. Turn to Leviticus, to one of the sections you just kind of pass over in your yearly read-through, Leviticus 25. Um, What a joy to be here. Um, uh, Pastor Kurt, uh, what an incredible brother. We have gone through so many things together. It's been amazing, and I know how seriously he takes the teaching of the Word, and so it is a high honor, um, high honor to be here and to be asked to be a part of you. So for nearly two decades, I've studied both the biblical patterns uh, of, the, uh, of the seventh rest cycles and the findings of modern stress physiology. And this morning, we don't have enough time for me to get into the absolutely remarkable uh, science of uh, stress physiology and the way it converges. But I'll just say it's really striking for me to watch my colleagues in the physiology department at the medical school. Uh, it's really funny to watch them uh, discover, get promoted and tenured for discovering what Moses wrote 3,400 years ago. Um, but uh, don't, by the way, don't mess with my tenure. Uh, so um, it, the, this morning I, I want to deal with a topic as we start that may seem strange to you. But for us to comprehend the importance of this issue, we have to start by understanding the foundational laws that are the basis for governing all of life. So, uh, as Pastor Kurt said, get your notes out. Um, My dad's a preacher, my brother's a preacher, my son's a preacher, but I'm a professor at the university, so uh, there may be a quiz. Uh, So take notes. Um, uh, There are three kinds of law in the Scripture. Here's your first blank. The first is natural law. And there are two kinds of natural law. The first is the physical laws, so gravity would be a classic of that. But in addition, in the natural law, there is the way that humans were supposed to behave, and that was established long before Moses came along and gave the law, the Torah, in the Old Testament. So, for instance, 500 years before Moses, everybody knew that Jacob was a schmuck for stealing the birthright. You weren't supposed to steal, even though it would be a half a millennium before Moses would come along and say, thus says the Lord, don't steal. Everybody knew you shouldn't steal. Everybody knows you can't have an intact society if everybody steals. So guess what? Long before Moses came along, it was obvious you don't steal. Um, You know, there's not, you, you can find societies that will let you have more than one wife, you cannot find a single society in all of history that says you can have somebody else's. Isn't that interesting? That where the law, as we think of it, has never gone, everybody already knows. Everybody knows. So the natural law, one man, one woman, was established in the beginning, long before Moses came along. So natural law. Uh, this, the, uh, by the way, all creation is under the natural law, and this is, you'll see why this is important. All creation is under the natural law. So let me just give an example. If a Christian and a non-believer fall off a 500-foot cliff at the same time, they, they, the Christian doesn't fall at half the velocity. Uh, they both die instantaneously at exactly the same time when they hit the ground. 
Now, the, the, the consequences eternally of that are, are different for the two, but the reality is, folks, and you're going to see how important this is, God has not suspended his natural laws for you. Second kind of law, Mosaic law, or the law of Moses. And only the Jews are subjected to the Mosaic law. And where you find, by the way, where you find the natural law is in the book of Genesis, okay? Before you have Moses come along, Moses probably wrote Genesis, but he writes there establishing the way to live and the way the universe works before you come to Exodus through Deuteronomy and the rest of the Old Testament, which expounds the Mosaic law. Um, And uh, again, only the Jews are under that law. And then the third kind of law is moral law. And moral law impacts humans in one of two ways. Unbelievers are condemned by it because remember God, Romans 1, has put in everyone a conscience, a knowledge of right and wrong. And so unbelievers are condemned by the moral law because they know what they ought to do and don't. And believers, it impacts completely differently. Remember in the New Covenant, God put the law on our hearts, so now we do by nature that which is Christ-like because of the Holy Spirit who indwells us. And you find the, the moral law, or some people call it the law of Christ, in the New Testament. Okay, so uh, if only Jews are under the Mosaic law, it brings up an interesting question about the Sabbath laws, doesn't it? Um, in fact, the Apostle Paul taught about this exact issue, and uh, this text should come up for you from Colossians 2. Notice this fascinating statement. Therefore, let no one act as your judge in regard to, and now he lists a bunch of things that you're not supposed to let anybody judge you about, in regard to food or drink, or in respect to a festival or a new moon, or a Sabbath day. Isn't that interesting? Don't let anybody judge you with respect to a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So this leads to a pivotal question. Since only the Jews are under the law of Moses... Is the Mosaic law irrelevant to non-Jews? Well, of course not. But this is one of the reasons why I went through describing the three kinds of law. Notice, remember, all people, all of the universe is under the natural law, right? And the law of Moses is the Mosaic law is... The Jews are under that. Under the moral law, all are under the moral law, okay? So notice, this is a real key. When Moses teaches, don't commit adultery. Is it relevant to a new covenant believer? Absolutely, because that is both in the natural law and in the moral law. So all of the Mosaic law that is directly relevant to either the moral law or the natural law or both is relevant to all of us because remember the whole universe is under the natural law and all of mankind is under the moral law. So when Moses says don't steal and Jesus and the apostles say don't steal, the law of Moses becomes directly relevant to us. So this is, to me, is fascinating because now what you realize is, um, well, let's look at the Sabbath law. Look at this from Exodus 20. You probably know it well, the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work. Now notice that's in Exodus. That's in Exodus. It's in the law of Moses. 
Uh, so I want to point something out that you may have never noticed before. Think about it. The Sabbath law, the Sabbath law is the only one of the Ten Commandments that's absent from the moral law. Right? Remember what Paul said in the New Testament? Don't let, let, don't let anybody act as your judge with respect to a Sabbath day. And this has created schizophrenia in the church. Okay? The, w- what we do is we hear Paul and we say, oh, this is great. We're, we're off. We're off the hook. It doesn't really matter. Which is ironic. We don't have time to deal with it today. But did you know the Sabbath is a gift? What makes sense is to work seven days a week. God said, no. I want to give you the gift of respite. Uh, which we, of course, as Americans, that makes absolutely no sense to us at all. Um, but uh, so, so notice, this, this has created great misunderstanding on the impact of the Sabbath rest cycles on non-Jews. So let's establish a key concept. Here's your next blanks. The foundation of the seventh rest cycles, and we'll talk about three of the seventh rest cycles in the Scripture, it comes from God's natural law. Remember Genesis 2 is where the natural law of Sabbath is established. Did you know the Sabbath is the first institution in the Bible? Comes before marriage. Um, so notice, although, here's your blank, we are, although we aren't under the Mosaic law of Sabbath, our bodies are still subjected to the natural law. So it turns out that there are several seventh rest cycles in the scripture. We just saw the weekly Sabbath from the fourth commandment. But in Leviticus 25, we now hear about another cycle of seven, the sabbatical. So look with me at verse three in Leviticus chapter 25. It's the third book in the Bible if you're still looking for it. Um, the, look, at the, look at this uh, verse three. Six years you shall, so it should show up here also. Six years you shall sow your field and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its crops. But during the seventh year, the land shall have a Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord, and you shall sow their field and you shall not sow your field nor prune your vineyard. Your harvest after growth you shall not reap. And your grapes of untrimmed vines you shall not gather. The land shall have a sabbatical year. Now think about this. Moses is giving this law before they go into the promised land with Joshua. And they already know when they go into the promised land, they are going to be subsistence farmers. So in a good year, it's going to be hard to survive. They have no modern tools. It's really hard to get the land to produce in a completely pre-mechanical, pre-industrial age, okay? They were going to be subsistence farmers. So, you know what? Think about this. This seemed absurd. They must have said, Moses, you are out of your mind, taking a year off. And so, of course, they did compromise their survival. So they did what all good followers of God have always done. When God's law doesn't make sense to me, I simply come up with a really righteous way, reason for not following God. So can't you just hear the Jews saying, well, here's the key. God's given us that seventh year off, but what we're going to do is we're going to work that seventh year so we can tithe more to God. And all, I mean, can you imagine all of the justification for the reasons why it was better to disobey? And you know what's interesting? Both scripture and history show that the nation never one time, not once, ever followed the sabbatical year. Now, we know there was always a remnant. There was always a righteous subunit of the nation that would have said, as far as my land, we're doing sabbatical. But the nation absolutely never did it, and you'll see in a minute why that matters. So I want us to look, believe it or not, now at the link to the Babylonian exile. There's a connection between the sabbatical year and the Babylonian exile. Just for a reset, remember, there's, uh, you go from, uh, you go from Abraham 
uh, and Abraham moves and you go through Isaac and Jacob. He has the 12 sons. Joseph goes into Egypt. You spend 400 years in Egypt. And after your 400 years in Egypt, you go into Canaan and you have 400 years of the judges. After that, Samuel's the last judge and they take a king. During those cycles of the kings, there was cycle after cycle after cycle of idolatry, right? And finally at the end, God says to the Jews, there's no remedy, and he exiles them into Babylon, okay? Um, Believe it or not, the cause of the exile, it could have been a bunch of things, right? I mean, my goodness, these are people who have sacrificed their children to the detestable god of Molech. But you ready for this? We see here in Leviticus chapter 26, turn one chapter to the right, we see here in Leviticus 26 the reason they got exiled into Babylon. This is, of course, a prophecy This would be uh, 800 years in advance, prophecy by Moses. So notice, by the way, Leviticus um, 26 is very similar to Deuteronomy 28 in that it's one of those where you probably have posters about the first half of it and things on your refrigerator and pretty pictures where it says, and if you obey me, you're not going to believe it. Your cows will have so many calves you won't know what to do with all of them. And then there comes a verse that says, but... If you don't obey me, and then the whole thing tanks, and you do not have that in your cute little promises that you read to the children in the morning. You don't have a poster about this. Well, that happens at verse 14 in Leviticus 26. Look at verse 14 with me. But if you do not obey me, or do not carry out all these commandments, and then he just starts saying all that, you you will not have crops, you will not have calves, you will not have lambs. Uh, You are going in the tank, and look what happens at the end of this litany of all the things that will happen to them if they have disobeyed him. Notice, uh, pick up in verse uh, 33, right? Is that our our next verse in our notes? 33, you, however, look what's going to happen. I will scatter among the nations and draw out a sword after you. So he's talking now specifically about both the Assyrian scattering, but also the Babylonian exile, which is a very specific, well-established historical event. Notice, uh, and your, as your land becomes desolate and your cities become waste, and are you ready for this? Now he explains why. Then the land will enjoy its Sabbaths. Fascinating. All the days of the desolation while you are in your enemy's land, then the land will rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. All the days of its desolation, I will, it will observe the rest which it did not observe on your Sabbaths while you were living on it. Okay, notice, so the cause of the, the specific cause of the Babylonian exile was the fact that they never gave the land its sabbatical rest. But you know what? The 70 years of the, of, in fact, you probably know, the prophet Jeremiah prophesied the length of the exile to the month, 70 years. And that was, it turns out, not random at all. Um, now, for those of you who like biblical history, for all three of you, I have a, a timeline. I have a timeline uh, there for you to go back and actually study if you'd like to. Um, but I put, I put it there for later. I just want to look at a couple of highlights about the length of the kingship and the length of the exile. And here's what's hap- what happened. Remember God, Samuel comes to God. Samuel, the last, he's a prophet, but he's also the last of the judges. And the people say, no, we want a king like all the other people. He says, no, you don't. And they say, yes, we do. And finally God says, of course, okay, give him king. That then establishes Saul in 1051 as the first king of Israel. And something very important happens when there's a central government in Israel. Now, the word would say the prophets and the 
priest should have said to the king Saul, here's the, the scoop king, uh, king, now that we have a central government, the government is responsible to co- follow God's law. So Saul should have said, here's the scoop. If I'm going to be king, you're going to have to kill me. Otherwise, we're doing the sabbatical because this nation will do what God wants us to do. Well, that never happened. And it goes all the way till 606 B.C., which is very well, by the way, well-established archaeological hard date uh, of when the Babylonian exile occurred. And, and uh, so, just so, you, just so you know, I think you have a couple of blanks related to this, but here's the, here's the quick of it. From, 10, from 1001, by the way, you're going to see in a minute why this has anything to do with you. Um, okay, 1051 B.C. to 606 B.C. is... 445 years. So, what we're going to look at is, I, I hide these things for myself all the time when I'm teaching, by the way. Um, okay, so, so what we're going to ask is, how many sabbatical years got stolen from the land in 445 years? Well, this is way too complicated to just simply look at the number and figure it out, so let's break it into blocks of 50 years. In 50 years, you had... Uh, you had seven sabbaticals, right? Seven times seven is 49. So in 50 years, you have seven sabbaticals, and then another seventh rest cycle happened. After the seventh sabbatical, you immediately had what was called the what? Jubilee. So you immediately had back-to-back sabbaticals. So in a 50-year cycle, uh, and God, I think, did this so this would be easier to teach on Sunday morning, uh, so that it would all round up to 50 years. In 50 years, you have exactly seven sabbaticals and one jubilee year. Okay, so let's get ourselves up to 400 years worth of Sabbaths. Okay, so eight times 50 is 400. Eight times seven is 56. Eight times one is eight. And now we got to deal with our last, that gets us up to, 400 and to, uh, up to 400 years, right? Now let's get our last 45 years. In 45 years, you have six more sabbaticals. So now this is in your notes. Write it down. Guess what? 56 plus 8 plus 6 equals 70 years. Whoa. You'll see. Leviticus matters. This length is absolutely amazing. Think about it. Seventy years of rest were robbed from the land. And so, exactly seventy years of rest was given back during the exile. Since God's people, listen church, because this relates to the natural law, God established the seventh rest cycle in Genesis. All of nature runs this way. So notice, since God's people wouldn't give the land its Sabbaths, God gave them back every last one of them. Folks, the land will get its rest. You don't have to give it to it, but trust me, most of my practice of emergency medicine over the years, I've seen many, many people who, at the most inconvenient time, the land takes its rest back. So here's the uh, amazing question. You, you may be thinking, okay, what in the world does this have to do with non-Jews? So the question is, this concept of the seventh rest cycles, how does it fit in to the, the laws? So natural law, mosaic law, and moral law, right? So we know this is in the mosaic law because we just read it from Leviticus, right? So yes, it's in the law of Moses. Is it in the moral law? No, 
Paul said, don't let anybody judge you with respect to a Sabbath day. So the big question about whether it matters to you and me is, is it in the natural law? Well, of course it is. Look at the screen from Genesis chapter 2. And by the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work which he had done. I wish I had time to talk to you about, do you realize, has it ever occurred to you how absurd it was that God rested? I mean, is there anything more profound than God modeled something that was completely irrelevant to him because it was so important to us? And by the way, you know what's really fascinating? 25 years ago, Olympic athletes worked out seven days a week. You know what they do now? The stress physiologists and the exercise physiologists have figured out, wow, if you exercise six days a week, and every once in a while you take a prolonged period completely off from exercise, guess what? They become better athletes, they go faster, jump higher, and are stronger. Well, who would have thought? What an amazing thing. And guess what? Somebody got promoted for that publication, undoubtedly. It's amazing to me. So notice, here's the key concept. The seventh rest cycles are a part of God's plan. They are. They're in the natural law, okay? So even for new covenant believers, and I love when I teach this, in the, I teach this mostly in the setting of pastors and pastors' retreats, and usually their spouse has to write in, because I put the word pastors there, and their spouse has to write it in for them, because they don't believe it. Um, for the new covenant believers, and notice, disobeying Sabbath will have consequences. It will, because this is the way the universe runs, Talk about that in just a minute in our applications. So let me just summarize this. The processes that are going on in every human's body are subjected to these foundational laws. This is true whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. In fact, the rate at which the body decays is directly related to how we respond to God's natural laws. The length of the exile was an eternal statement that the land will get its rest. Okay, so... Now that we understand this universal significance of the concept of Sabbath and seventh rest cycles, I want to talk about some of the implications. Uh, Now those of you who sleep through Leviticus can wake up because here's the application. Number one, here's your blank. The Sabbath is supposed to be a weekly reminder that all of my time belongs to God. Pay attention. Sabbath is the time equivalent to tithing in the financial realm. Now, track with me here. You may have heard, I'm sure Pastor Kurt, since he's absolutely orthodox, without question, I've never heard him say anything that is the slightest bit of error. So it never would have been said here. But you've been to churches where they get up and they give the offering, and you know what they say? They say we're giving God's tithes and our offerings. Ever heard that? And you know what that implies is the tithe belongs to God and the rest is mine. And here I am, boy, am I amazing. I'm giving above my tithe. It's mine. Wrong. (laughs) Notice, the reason God commanded Sabbath was because it's supposed to be a weekly reminder that all of our time belongs to him. It's an affirmation that as his children, folks, we don't own anything. We're merely stewards. Nothing belongs to us. Not our talents, our possessions, our children, our profession, nothing. And the Sabbath was given us to put a big hole in this curious notion that my time 
is my own. It blasts through that completely. Notice the Sabbath was given to us so that, 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 that we can understand that every second comes to us as a gracious gift from God. And that's why he wanted us to frequently give a portion of our time back to him. It's exactly like the concept of tithing. It's all his, and it gives us the opportunity to joyfully use what he owns for his purposes and not for mine. So in fact, think about this. Sabbath drives us all the way as tithing properly taught, not as law, but as expression of who owns it all, it's supposed to drive us far beyond this. Notice the Sabbath is supposed to remind me that every decision, every activity, every task, every conversation, indeed, my very life belongs completely to God. I hope we weren't lying as we sing those profound songs about surrender. Lord, it's yours. It isn't mine. Application number two. Here's your blank. The Sabbath concept isn't just about time. It's actually about building balance into all of life. You see, the Sabbath laws are incredibly important, but they actually reflect a far more profound concept. God wants to keep us from being enslaved to the extremes that tend to take over our life. You see, we live, look around, actually look in our homes, as you'll see in a minute, We live in a world of addictions. A big part of my practice is watching the consequences of addictions. And it's important to understand that anything, even good things, will inevitably be out of balance when we don't allow the Holy Spirit to have control of every single aspect of life. Paul actually expressed this truth in 1 Corinthians 6. Look at it on the screen. All things are lawful for me, But not all things are profitable. Listen to this profound statement. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. So let me bring this significance of this passage 2,000 years forward to us. Did you know? And by the way, this is, just so you know, this is really cool. First of all, I have a day job. I don't need to preach like Pastor Kurt does for his income. Uh, we're close enough friends that I can say stuff like that. Um, um, by the way, you know what? Knowing him, if he never got a penny, he would preach the gospel till his last breath. Isn't it great to have a leader like that? Um, but, but let me tell you, the, the good, see, this is really, when people ask my wife Dana, since I teach the Bible sometimes in big church, when people ask my wife Dana if, if I would ever consider being a pastor, she literally bursts out laughing in their face. Um, because, folks, I have zero shepherd in me. I just can't say, oh, poor you, that must be tough. Uh, you know, I'm really good at, don't be deceived, God is not mocked, you reap what you sow. Okay, I got that down, but forget the rest. So no risk of me being a pastor, okay? So here comes the part where you're all going to be incredibly mad. But the good news is, I get to leave and Pastor Kurt can clean up the mess. Um, so, so, so I'm just going to start talking about the kinds of things. Did you know that your family can be mastered by Little League, Little League Baseball or by soccer? Now, don't start saying amen yet because I'm going to get to your part of the list in a minute. Okay, (laughs) school activities can rule a family's time. Being a good parent means, listen, that you teach your children to build balance into their life and stay away from extremes. And yes, just tell them, you're not going to the NBA, so get over it. 
We're going to church. Sorry, boy, some of you just really, that hurt, didn't it? Um, You know, you teach them not to be mastered by even good things. So let me give a list. See if you've put balance into them. Sleep. Too little or too much. Um, By the way, the sleep physiologists say the typical American gets two hours less sleep than we need to be physiologically healthy. Spending money. Thought this was about Sabbath. Absolutely, this is about Sabbath, which is about balance in all of life. Um, Are you a hoarder? Does your desire to spend drive you? Work versus rest. Are you a sloth or an alcoholic? The Word teaches that both are wrong. Talking versus listening. Let me just ask you, do you know when to shut up? Think about it. See, Sabbath should impact even the way we interact with people, especially if you, if you overwhelm other people and are imbalanced and you're blabbering versus listening, don't congratulate yourself for going to church on Sunday because Sabbath is about everything we do. Okay, exercise. Has busyness taken priority over caring for your body? Sports, has the amount of time that you spend on sports taught your children that it's really a major priority in your life? What about electronic media? Now, by the way, you know, Josiah, you could make that video about silence a lot better if you would have dubbed in some music in the background. (laughs) Some of you will get that tomorrow. Uh, uh, TV, internet, personal communication devices, uh, did you know... The text messaging and Twitter can steal all of your relationships. And some of you just put your iPhone down for the first time this morning. Yeah, stop texting right now, mid-sentence. Hit the guy next to you. Um, have you ever watched two people at lunch so consumed by staying connected electronically that they ended up missing the interaction with the person who is right in front of them? Credit card usage. If you can't pay, by the way, this is going to sound absurd in our culture. If you can't pay off all of your balances each month, then friend, your desire to spend is running your life. It's out of balance. Hobbies, won't even start. Fantasy sports. This is fascinating. Did you know the, boy, it gets quiet in here, doesn't it? Um, Did you know that the scriptural concept of slothfulness has two meanings? One is laziness. Slothfulness and laziness. Laziness certainly is slothfulness in the Scripture, but did you know that there's another meaning for uh, the word slothfulness? It's also the imbalance of spending large amounts of time on the trivial. Slothfulness. Spending lots of time on the trivial. See, it's wasting significant portions of your life doing stuff that in the end is meaningless if it's a focus of your life. Recreation. Some of you have taught your children that being part of the body of Christ isn't as important as camping or hiking or biking or boating or RVing. Um, uh, Here's a big one. Dessert. (laughs) Um, So have I made everybody mad yet or have I left anybody out? Do I need to keep going? I think you get the picture. Write this in. This is the best modern day way to understand Sabbath. It's the key concept. Write it in. Sabbath is the opposite 
of addiction. Sabbath is the opposite of the bondage of addiction to anything, even good things. So anything can be out of balance. And so notice, what we end up with is we have no space, we have no margins, we have no solitude because we're consumed by activity. We're in bondage to our busyness in this culture. But Christ calls us to lay down our addictions so that we can live with wholeness and health and balance. Application number two. Some of you were worried when you saw all these notes and long applications. As you can see, I'm an emergency physician. So, by the way, I love the opportunity to preach here because this is the only place I preach where I am slower than your usual pastor. Um, So, um, (laughs) as you know... Yes, I spent 11 years at Crossroads keeping up with Kurt when he was preaching. And then I'd, of course, every time be on my face at the altar uh, at the end. Uh, How did you know? Um, Application number three, if you want to live with more balance, you may have to live with less income. So one reason many of us have to work so hard is because we want so much stuff. Uh, So we go after promotions that we may not really have the skills for, or we put in more hours, or we take on a second job, or live with a lifestyle that requires two incomes uh, for the family to sustain uh, when we don't believe that's the way we are supposed to. Uh, I'm, again, I'm not telling anybody what you ought to not be doing what you ought to be doing, but it's amazing how we're driven in the church just like outside the church. So the fact is, some of us will really never be able to live in balance until we're willing to live with a smaller home an older car, fewer clothes, and less expensive toys. For many of us, we really won't know rest and balance, folks, until we're ready and willing to be, I've outlined the book, but nobody will ever publish it, so I'm not going to write it, but the name of the book is Downwardly Mobile. Until we're willing to be downwardly mobile. So here's the bottom line when it comes to your time and your money, folks. Just say no. Just say no. Say to the culture and to the kids and to the neighbors and to the club and to the PTA and to the boss and everyone else about your time and your money, just say no. Here's what you do. You identify in your life what really matters, what really matters, and then don't let the essentials get stolen by trivia. Application number four. Sabbath is one way the Lord keeps us from depending on ourselves rather than Him. So I want us to look at the seventh rest cycles one more time. How did God take care of their needs when they stopped working? Well, remember, the weekly Sabbath, what did He do? He gave them the miracle of manna. Listen to this from Exodus 16. The Lord has given you the Sabbath... And therefore, so remember, they're now at the point where every day they're out gathering manna. Except notice, therefore, he gives you bread for two days on the sixth day. Remain every man in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So God came through with a double portion of manna so that they did not have to gather food on the seventh day. So notice, it's one thing if God didn't come through with that and they had to fast 24 hours. But what about the sabbatical year? See, God knew that the sabbatical plan would not make sense to them. So you're in Leviticus 26. Go back to Leviticus 25. And look with me at verse 18. Here's God. Here's Moses speaking the word of the Lord. And the Lord will see 
predicts that they're going to be really worried about this sabbatical year. Verse 18, you shall observe my statutes and keep my judgments so to carry them out, that you may live securely on the land. Then the land will produce its, uh, will yield its produce so that you can eat your fill and live securely on it. Now look, here's everybody's question. Right, take a year off. But if you say, what are we going to eat on the seventh year if you do not sow or gather in our crops? Now, I want you to notice, since we, I don't know if there's any Hebrews here, but, uh, or Jews here, but uh, probably most of you, or maybe all of you are Gentiles, so we don't think in Hebrew. Uh, and, and you know things were actually much worse than they look on the surface? Several things. Here's number one. Here's your blank. The reality was, their survival wasn't just in question for one year, but two. You see, they were, they were forbidden from harvesting and sowing. So in the seventh year, they couldn't gather food, but they also couldn't sow for the next year. Let me make sure we all understand what a completely absurd, ridiculous law this was and why they were much smarter than God not following this because this was absurd. Notice, you're in year six here, and now you come into year seven, and in year seven, there's no harvesting, right? You can't go, you can't go gathering the crops, But there's also no sowing in year seven, so in year eight, there is no harvest. Bummer. Look at this. They can sow in year eight, so we're talking until year nine. They are in big trouble. They're all going to die. So notice, this is absolutely amazing. Uh, Number two, God was placing them in a position where they had to rely on him alone for their survival for two whole years. But God had a plan. Look again at verse 20. But if you say, what are we going to eat on the seventh year if we do not sow or gather in our crops, then I will so order my blessing for you in the sixth year that it will bring forth the crop for three years. When you are sowing in the eighth year, you can still eat the old things from the crop, eating the old until the, isn't this amazing? Until the ninth year when its crop comes in. Number three, here it is, God's incredible plan. Three days, three years of food for one year of work. You see, God wanted to multiply the fruit of their labor through their faith. And folks, God wants to do the same thing in our lives. So what an incredible concept this is. But, but here's the test. Do we really think that he'll take care of everything, even if we cease toiling to give our bodies the Sabbath they deserve and they need? Do we really believe that he'll supply all our needs, even if we aren't overworking? Application number five. I told you, this is, as an, if I was an internist, you'd be in trouble. We'd be here till next week. But I'm an emergency physician. It's a bit like drinking out of a fire hose. So trust me, we'll be done on time. Number five, when you overwork, you're actually less productive in the long run. This is totally counterintuitive, but you know what? It turns out that God knew that we were going to overwork trying to ensure our survival and trying to get ahead. And that's why he did an end run around all of our overwork plans. You know what? He set up the universe, folks, in such a way that no matter how hard we work, If we don't obey his Sabbath, his balance plan, there's a futility built in to the fabric of life. 
So you know what? Guess what? In my arena, the scientists have discovered this truth. You can find it in cardiology. It's the Starling Law of how the muscles of the heart work. But in, in general, you know what it's called by the scientists? The Law of Diminishing Returns. You've probably heard of it. Now, now notice, this is the law of diminishing returns. When a person or a machine or a system tries to be more productive by working beyond its capacity, ultimately, efficiency decreases. So, guess what? There comes a point where, ironically, working more produces less. And so, all the Olympic athletes who want the gold medal are now taking a day off because they want to be more productive Isn't it? It's just remarkable. By the way, guess what the agricultural scientists have found out? They give the land a Sabbath. Why? Because in the long run, it produces more. Who would have thought? So notice, if I'll obey his plan for having balance between work and rest, between activity and silence, God will actually do things that will never happen when I'm working in my own strength. So notice, this is a deeply spiritual issue, folks. This is not just about a day off. This is literally about trusting God that his way is not just right, it's actually best. It's best for me. So notice, in my own strength, things will never happen. Guess what can happen in my strength? I will never get more than one year's harvest for one year's work. And if I will trust him, he will give me the miracle of Three years of harvest for one year's work. Isn't he good? Take your time off and be more productive. Application number six. Application number six. Obeying God's call to Sabbath and balance puts me in a position to see and hear and know things that I will never experience otherwise. This is why the Lord really used you, Josiah, in putting together this morning's concept of bringing silence and knowing God, quiet and strength, stillness and rest, and really knowing Him together. I'd I'd like us to look at the person who had the best justification to skip his times of Sabbath and devotions and solitude and prayer and rest. Think about this. Jesus had only three and a half years to save the entire world. So he obviously had no time for anything but preaching and teaching and healing and ministering and meeting needs, right? He had no time for anything else. He had no time to waste being by himself in solitude of all things. After all, I mean, he'd already been with God for eternity, right? So he had three and a half years to get it done, to to put out, right? And so he, he had... He, folks, he had the most important mission in the history of the universe. So let's look at one of the really busy times in his ministry. It's in full swing, and multitudes are coming to him to be healed and to hear the gospel. Look at it up on the screen. Here's Luke 5:15. But the news about him, Jesus, was spreading even farther, and large crowds were gathering to hear him and to be healed by their sicknesses. What an amazing ministry! And Jesus' remarkable life-saving ministry here now is really cranking and the multitudes are coming to him, hear him speak the truth and to save their souls. And now comes one of the most out-of-place passages in all of Scripture. Look at the next verse. But Jesus himself would 
often slip away to the wilderness and pray. This is so important, I want you to write this one in. It's your blank. But he himself would often slip away to the wilderness to pray. Let me ask you something. How could Jesus justify leaving these desperate, needy people to go to the wilderness often? How could he leave crippled children behind? I mean, wasn't Jesus compassionate? Oh my. You see, these, they're all lost. They're dying. They have what only he can give. And you know what? I think there are two answers why Jesus went to be all by himself with his father alone, and it really convicts me because I really struggle with this, folks. You know what, number one? I think Jesus actually loved being with his father. When Jesus went to temple and sang like we did this morning, Lord, I'm desperate for you, as we often have sung. You're the air I breathe. I'll just confess, most of the time I'm lying. I'm not really desperate to know him. Jesus could leave healing children to go be with his father because what mattered more to Jesus more than anything was knowing God. And you know what's amazing to me? The scholars have it all wrong. When they interpret that passage, they say the reason why Jesus went to the wilderness to be by himself with the father was because he was so worn out by the multitudes I think it is absolutely wrong. Listen, church, if you want to make a major impact in this place, I believe that is he had the multitudes because he went to the Father. You ready for this? Jesus said all the time, all that I have comes from the Father. Are you ready for this, folks? Jesus didn't have what it takes. He said, all that I do comes from the Father. So you ready for this? You know why Jesus was wasting time in the wilderness? Because Jesus didn't have what the world needed. So he kept going to the wilderness to get the only thing that could save the world. So I believe first Jesus actually loved being, spending time with his father. And number two, I believe he wanted more than anything else to know his father. It was more important to him even than ministry. Okay, so I believe we allowed other interests and activities and priorities to replace our wilderness times with the father. We've jettisoned the one thing that really mattered to Jesus the most. Hmm. And notice, you might think this is pretty bold, but look at what the sociologist George Barna has found in his research evaluating the amount of time American believers spend concentrating on God. This is a staggering statement. It's in your notes. Write it in. The average Christian in America spends seven times as much time viewing electronic entertainment, so TVs, movies, internet, than, are you ready for this, than all forms of personal and corporate devotions, worship, prayer, and Bible study combined. Oh my, what's missing? Balance. There's nothing wrong with work or recreation or entertainment. They're good things. They were made by God. He created them for us. And these can be such incredibly good things. There's nothing wrong with sports or extracurricular activities. There's nothing wrong with video games or watching TV or surfing the net, folks. But, you know, we've allowed these things to steal our desire to really know God. Compare this to this hunger for the things of God that is supposed to typify his people you got a bunch of blanks here right out of the scripture. Write them in. 
from Psalm 27. One thing, think about this, one thing, King David, one thing I have asked that I shall seek, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. Think about this. David was a king. He could have anything he wanted. And when you boiled the one thing down, he wanted to be with the Lord and see his beauty and meditate on him. Psalm 42, write it in. You know this, but this is what the literal Hebrew says, as the deer longs, as the deer longs for the water. So my soul longs for you. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. And I still loathe the day that I found this one. I hate it. It convicts me, and I don't have the right to teach this. So hear the word of the Lord and know that it's not coming through someone who ought to be able to teach it, but it's the word of the Lord. Write it in. My soul waits in silence. You ready for this? For God only. Let me ask you, when was the last time you actually waited in silence until God himself showed up? You know, I wait around for all kinds of other things. You know, I'm not the one who gets out of tent to stay at Best Buy to get the iPad, what is it, 93 now? But you know what? Every one of us have our tendencies to steal hearing from God because we have other plans. Listen to another familiar passage we sang it this morning. Be still and know that I'm God. You know that one. Now I'm going to have you write in the corollary to Psalm 46, 10. Here's the corollary. Write it in. Stay busy and occupy every moment with activity and always stay on the move and miss really knowing me. Think about this. We'll never really know God until we slow down. But we're surrounded by a conspiracy of continuous noise, continuous activity, continuous electronic communication, continuous visual output. I mean, were you with me that after Josiah had been looking that word silence up here and it was actually quiet in here, after about 17 seconds, weren't you getting chest pain with me? I mean, saying, uh, you know, come on. Okay, I get it. Silence. Next. Um, We're surrounded by a conspiracy that literally takes away the knowledge of God because, folks, listen, unless we, like Jesus, go out and shut up and listen, we will never hear from him. So, you know, I'd like to blame my culture, wouldn't you? But I will confess I've made a choice. They got me. And God wanted his people uh, to be warned about this incredibly bad choice a long time ago. Write it in. Here's your last blank. Listen to Isaiah 30, 15. In repentance and rest, you shall be saved. Isn't that interesting? Not work. Not my righteousness. Not my ministry. In repentance and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness. And trust is your strength. Oh, listen, church, write the last blank in. But you were not willing. I believe that is American Christianity in a verse. 
So we've allowed our quietness and our rest and our balance to be stolen from us. But ultimately, folks, it's not our culture. It's our choice. Josiah, come help us. Listen to Psalm 62.1 again. My soul waits in silence for God only. It reminds me of how convicted I am of when God sins. Listen to this, church. How, how cool would it be? When, you know, an unnamed angel in the book of Revelation, an unnamed angel, he isn't even an archangel. He's just a regular old angel guy, mediocre angel. And you know what? When he speaks the gospel, it says the entire world hears it, every tribe, tongue, and nation. There's an unnamed angel in the book of Revelation, that when he appears, it illumines the entire earth. Pretty decent. I'd, how, about, how much would you like an angel to show up to help you? I'd like that a lot. And you ready for this? God comes to Moses before they are about to go, as he's telling them about going into the promised land, and God shows up to Moses, and God says, Moses, <laughs> I'm going to send an angel before you. And I would have said, ooh, one of those can kill 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. I'm in. And you know what Moses said? It just kills me. God, if you don't go with us, I'm not going anywhere. An angel's not enough. Folks, listen. What we need is for him to actually show up. But he doesn't show up until I shut up and in silence wait for him. So, the psalmist has said, consumed by one thing, a desire to know God. You know, he was persuaded that nothing was going to bring him real satisfaction except God himself. Notice, when a person gets to this point, one thing I want is him. You know what's amazing? They'll settle for nothing else. They'll accept no substitutes. They'll endure no counterfeits. This person will have other interests, and they'll have hobbies and pastimes, and they may have a profession, but you know what? They will have only one passion, to know God in his fullness. And I confess, I have a lot of other interests besides the mighty one of Israel. So let me ask you today, whether you're young or old, whether you're in school or working in a profession, regardless of the specific situation you're in at this point in your life, do you really want to know God? Or is he simply an appendage to your busy life? The word of the Lord is clear. Son, daughter, be quiet. Slow down. Come to me in stillness. Stop talking. Stop running. Stop working. Be silent and know me. Look at this unbelievably remarkable insight by G.K. Chesterton. Listen to this. Satan's masterpiece isn't the derelict on Skid Row. He wrote this 100 years ago. So it's the, the 
get that he's not saying anything mean to anybody. It's just the verbiage they use. Satan's masterpiece isn't the derelict on Skid Row. Satan's masterpiece is a well-dressed man or woman sitting in church who has learned how to play the religious game, but who doesn't actually know God. So as we close, I'd like us to consider what the Word of God has called us to. This morning is a call to Sabbath. It's a call to simplify. It's a call to silence. It's a call to rest. It's a call to quietness. And you know what? It's a call to get rid of a bunch of stuff. It's a call to reject a culture of extremes and accept a new life of balance. It's a call to leave the slavery and the bondage of a frantic life, to step into the freedom of walking with the Master. You know, over the years, I've found that the altar is a great place to bring our baggage to the Lord. And I know you guys often use the altar here. You know, it's a great place to hand my stuff over to him so he can change me into who he wants me to be. This morning, the altar may be a great place to bring your time, your schedule, your smartphone, your work, your activities, your plans, your hobbies, your schoolwork, and your life, and just surrender it to him. Perhaps there are some couples that need to come together. Perhaps coming to the altar will provide one space for you where you can actually be left alone for long enough to talk and communicate and pray together. I fear in a crowd this large there may be couples who follow Jesus diligently and you haven't prayed together for months. Stand with me. Everyone stand. There may be many here who've realized that you've gotten caught up in the frantic lifestyle of a world over the edge. You realize that balance has been stolen from you. You realize that it's been a long time since you laid down your work and your activities and your schedule and your electronic gadgets just to be silent. There may be many here who have lost God's gift of Sabbath and balance. And in losing these, you realize that you haven't just lost your peace and solitude. You realize that what you have really lost is knowing Him. So this morning... God has called us to Sabbath and balance. And if the Holy Spirit has shown you areas in your life where you need to commit to changes, where you need to simplify, where you need to rearrange priorities, then I invite you to just come forward as Pastor Josiah leads.